The beginning's always hard. I have yeah. to do it like two First times. Sentences. You I just know. start. Hey, welcome to the bundle of hers. Yeah, I know. Hi, welcome to the bundle of hers. This is her G, and in the studio today we have Margo with me. Hey. We also have a very special guest. We have Dr. Cohen, um, who's a hospitalist at the VA in the University of Utah. Um, Dr. Cohen, thank you so much for coming today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's a real honor to be here. We're super excited about the episode today. One thing that we hope to accomplish with Bundle of Hers is getting out voices of people that are unheard. But also, I think that in general, we have the four of us have really tried to uplift voices in all arenas of our lives, be it at home, in our communities, or in medical school. And I remember when I first met you, Dr. Cohen, I was like, I need to have a connection with this doctor because I feel like that's kind of a work you do on the daily. And I was so um, appreciative because you actually invited us to an iftar dinner. So um, Mm -hmm. Lean and Bushra, who are uh, identified as Muslim, they were invited to this dinner. And Lean's like, you have to come. It'll be so fun. Um, So we ended up going. What's iftar? Oh, iftar. So um, there's the month of Ramadan that um, Muslims observe. And iftar is when they break their fast. So that's Mm -hmm. the breaking of the fast dinner. Um, that we were all able to join you and eat a meal. And we just had great conversation about life, of being Muslim, of those that were um, Muslim there, of just our experiences in medicine. I just felt so comfortable and so safe that if there was ever a situation where I needed to talk to someone, you were someone that I felt like I could go to. Yeah, and just so you know the backstory on that, um, I wanted to support... Um, some of our residents in internal medicine, as well as medical students who are, who identify as Muslim, who were fasting. And so I decided I would try to fast to support them. It was a disaster. I don't think I, I don't think I even completed like a full two days of fasting. Right. Um, but at the end of that sort of attempt of a week, um, my friend and I, Dory, we cooked and prepared this meal and then invited basically a lot of strangers because I had never even met you. Right. And so, you know, the the time comes and the sun has set and nobody's nobody's knocked on the door. And we think like, oh no, oh, no. <laughs> what have we done? We've made a terrible mistake. Like no one's going to trust these two white ladies. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like pounding on the door and everybody starts rolling in. Right. And we have dates and water to break the fast and then just this incredible like community all all at once that just sort of like ignited my fire to like we got to keep doing this right and now I think it's going to become a, an annual event and I'm hoping we outgrow my apartment <laughs> I that would be amazing that was one of the most memorable nights for oh, us thanks. and me and lean ended up having a conversation afterwards about it mm-hmm. and just how fun it was to get to know all these people and that's kind of what is the important part is the human connections yes. and hearing people's stories, hearing their experiences and just knowing a little bit more about the world. Yes. So along those lines, what prompted you to even do this in the first place? I know you do a lot of other work in the community, in the medical community specifically surrounding topics of race and privilege. Mm-hmm. And um, I kind of just wanted to know your story. What kind of got you involved in doing this work. Sure, sure. 
And I'm wondering if it would be okay if we kind of backtracked a little bit and just went through some definitions. I think that would be great. Okay. Because I think it's going to be really helpful if we're on the same sort of sheet of music so that when I tell you my story and I use certain language, um, you have a good understanding of what I'm talking about. We would love that. Okay. I think that's super helpful. Okay. So helpful. So let's start with bias or prejudice. And essentially, can we agree that a bias or a prejudice is really when with very little information about another group, you create a story or a narrative. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So let me give you an example. So from academic year 2018 to 2019, there were over 45,000 white students enrolled in medical school. And students who identify as black or African-American, there's only 6,500. So with that data, I could easily create a story, right? Well, maybe black students just aren't motivated. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're just not as intelligent, academic, or they just don't want to become doctors. Like, so you can see how dangerous that bias is. Right. So then discrimination, how I define it, is acting out on my prejudice. So let's say I am a white woman facilitator for School of Medicine, and I have a student of color in my small group, and that student of color is trying to you know, maybe maybe push the group to talk about something challenging or sensitive like race. Um, and as the if I have that bias, I might discriminate by continuing to cut off that student, right, mm-hmm. and silence him or her. Race is a social construct with very lived realities. Right. Like very real lived realities. So race, it was essentially created by white people in order to classify other groups to justify advantage, right? Like we needed to basically diminish and oppress people of color in order to justify our economic interests, predominantly in slavery. Right. Which it plays out, it continues to play out today. Racism, and this may be actually different for a lot of your listeners, this definition, because this definition actually comes from the perspective of who's oppressed, But it's essentially when a group that's in power oppresses another group based on their race. In order to do that, to make that happen, you create racist policy, you create laws that are racist, you create systems of oppression. So even when the oppressor is asleep, racism continues. Right. right? It's in the groundwater. It's it's continuing. And I think that, that that's genius because it also really frees white people up, well, I didn't create slavery. Mm-hmm. I didn't create that racist policy. Therefore, I can't be a racist. I really appreciate that you kind of um, laid that groundwork because um, I studied ethnic studies when I was an undergraduate. And that's kind of the the gist of what I feel these definitions are. Mm-hmm. I also do understand that specifically because it's a social construct that these definitions are fluid. Yes. But I think those are great kind of ground rules for us to build on this conversation. So thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. welcome. I, I agree with your definitions. All right. So the background on me. So I am a 45 year old white woman. Um, I'm a clinical educator and a physician. And whenever I say that line, that I just gave you of of who I am. So on Monday morning, when I take over a new team, I always huddle up and we go around the circle. And I wouldn't ask anyone to do something that I wouldn't already do. And so I I start, I give a one-liner about myself. 
And literally nine times out of 10, someone snickers, laughs, um, uh, snorts, does something because, because I said the word white. Mm-hmm. Oh. And when I asked them what's so funny, they're like, well, y- you said white. And so it got me thinking, wow, like we really don't have the tools to talk about race. No. Like race talk is really, it's really hard. Mm-hmm. And so what I do when I work with my teams is I let them know, like talking about race is hard for everyone, no matter your color. Can we use it as a learning opportunity to talk about something difficult or maybe just to listen? I actually love that you say that because we always stay most generally in our patient ID. This is a yeah. X year old white male right. or X year old black female. And we've been told in um, when we were trained um, here that use that race indicator if it's applicable. Mm. I remember I was taught that. Yeah, I, I think we were taught that. But in practice, I haven't used it. And it may come back to the conversation you're having of, well, two things for me. Like, is it medically necessary to state that first right. and foremost? Do we need to identify this person as an African-American or a black person versus a white person? And secondly, it's difficult to talk about race. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And um, for me anyway, so I, I know that we were kind of taught that, but I've actually never used it and I don't actually see it used that Anymore. much. Is that your experience? I've seen it a couple of times, but the reason why I'm bringing this point up is because you stated you say your race mm-hmm. and people mm-hmm. will sometimes kind of take a step back. But I don't see that when people use it in the patient ID. And exactly, exactly. Because I, I think I've personalized it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And I call it my white flinchable moment where it causes discomfort because I, I broke white solidarity. Right. The number one rule of being white is you don't you don't you don't talk about it. Yeah. It is impolite to talk about race. Race is messy. It's murky. Mm -hmm. And we just don't go there. So growing up, I grew up in an all white town like rural Oregon. There were no people of color in my hometown. I learned about race from, you know, my family, from the media, from teachers. And yeah, it was sort of like a shameful thing to talk about. And so if someone was describing, let's say, you know, well, the black nurse, like they almost like whisper it mm-hmm. as if like it's somehow like bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of me and my process is understanding my own white identity. And I think that's been good for me to to say that I'm white. Was there a specific time that you kind of really started thinking about your white identity? Yes. Yes. That was. Okay. Yeah. So unfortunately, I have lived segregated my entire life. Um, Even after I left my hometown um, on the coast of Oregon, larger cities, I continued to live among white people. I had just like this like palpable discomfort when I was around people of color. It was awful. And I recognize now what it was. Like I've learned about it. Like we all have identities, right? Like you Mm -hmm. identify as, you know, a medical student, a, a partner, a mother, like whatever your identity was. And as a white woman, like the worst thing that could happen would be that I could be called out as racist. Mm -hmm. And so I would get really uncomfortable around people of color because like I didn't want to put both feet in my mouth. And so I would just avoid them. If I happen to have to be in a situation, particularly with black people or African-American, like my voice would get squeaky. I would lose my words. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I was just a train wreck. 
mm-hmm. just a total train yeah. wreck because I hadn't like I had no no experience and I had no I had no skill mm-hmm. I um share that with you too I grew up here um in a pretty heterogeneous uh, population and I went to college in a predominantly white population as well and then I lived in Austin which was being very gentrified at the time and so I most of my experiences were being surrounded by people who looked like me, white people. And like you, I similarly felt that discomfort. And I yeah. often found myself trying to overcompensate and being like, I'm not a racist. I'm, I want, I'm your ally and I'm your friend and I'm going right. to like be extra nice to you and go out of my way. Mm-hmm. But that's not something I would do to the other, you know, like the white person sitting next to them. And so then in, by doing that, I'm isolating them. And, mm-hmm. and I just like that awkwardness and navigating. And I think it does come down to, being comfortable with my own white identity first yeah. and comfortable with race and then also reading about and teaching myself mm-hmm. to be comfortable. Yeah, doing right. the work. Yeah. So what made you push into that uncomfort? So it has to do with the iftar. Okay. So I, about three years ago, I had the opportunity to work with a team um, of residents and medical students who all didn't look exactly like me. Um, they had different faiths. They had different like different ethnicities, different race, um, and so in over the course of two weeks of of spending so much time together with them, they started sharing their stories, and all of a sudden it became deeply personal. Now I knew somebody, and it wasn't it wasn't just like disrespect that maybe I saw on TV, but it was like, well, that's just TV or a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it was actually like these were real people. And I had a connection with them and I cared deeply about them. And I recognized in that sort of over that, that course of that time, I didn't know anything about Islam. I didn't know anything about, you know, what it, what it's like to, to be a, a person of color where someone, you know, you walk into the, into the patient's room and they ask you, do you speak English? Where are you from? No, where really are you from? And, and like how, how you're treated. Like, it's like, I have so much privilege in my white skin where if you're a person of color, it's it's almost like a liability. And then sometimes like, there are some, some serious consequences. And I had just no idea. I sort of thought of disrespect in healthcare as like about gender, right? Or sexual harassment, come-ons and put-downs. And yes, that's real. But there was this whole other world of disrespect that I had no idea. And so I started really looking at it. And I also wanted to look at like, how do I contribute to racism and how do I benefit from it? It was pretty painful. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. it's not easy work to start to deconstruct your own racism Mm -hmm. because as white people, like there's no real reason to. Right. You know, like there's no sort of push. And I think this comes back to what you were saying about how racism is institutionalized in such a way that we can dissociate ourselves from it and say, I'm not a racist. Right. Um, And a lot of rhetoric I've been seeing on Instagram lately is about white supremacy. Mm -hmm. And classically, I kind of associate that with the Ku Klux Klan. And like, that's not me. I've never do that. But how it's defined into that integrated institutionalized racism that we all kind of hide behind. I've had a lot of discomfort in like reading and digesting that of like, Mm -hmm. oh, shit, like this is a big problem. Like I am contributing just because I'm a white person and not doing anything like my inaction is contributing to this. Yes, yes, right. 
I feel like the reason why I think the way that I think is because I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood. So I grew up in Salt Lake as well, Mm -hmm. but I particularly grew up in West Valley where Mm -hmm. basically all the people of color lived. And I would never trade that for the world. Yes, I did get a quote unquote. People say the high school I went to is the worst high school in the state. Um, A lot of disadvantages from being there, but I think that outweighs the advantage of being with people from different backgrounds because Mm -hmm. when you actually form those connections, that's really, I believe that's the core of diversity work Mm -hmm. is building connections with people who are different than you and learning from their experiences. So I think that it was so beautiful that you said, you know, these were real people Mm -hmm. and for you to actually know real people's stories you can't be uncomfortable. You have to talk to them. Right. Mm-hmm. right. Right. Talking about race is so important. Yeah. And in talking about it and like really getting into the discomfort, right, internalizing it, getting close to it, that's where the real growth happens. That's where change happens. You know, something that I've been also thinking about sort of recently is like what drives me? You know, like I, I'm kind of like an anxious hyper person. Um, but it's not anxiety that drives this. It's, it's my, it's my loneliness. I have been lonely my entire life and I seek connection trying to become an anti-racist because that's really what we have to do. It's not enough just to not be a racist. We have to like do the work to actively destroy this. And, and racism is all about disconnection and isolation. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I have so much loneliness that like when I get some connection, I'm like, oh, I want more mm-hmm. and I want more for my team and I want more for my nursing staff and I want more and more. And so for me, that's sort of what it's driving me to, to do this work. I think that's so powerful that you put yourself in that vulnerable spot to admit that you're lonely, because I think a lot of um, people are driven by loneliness and this, the seeking out the connection. And I yeah. think uh, it can also be the opposite too, right, where you want connection and like want to isolate to your own what you know is safe and comfortable Mm -hmm. and so then you can create those biases and tell yourself those stories to sort of separate anything that may be threatening those that are comforting and connected to you and maybe threatening to that sorry that was kind of like (laughs) all hectic i was like thinking it through in my i was like chloe will fix it i'm picking up what you're putting down i'm I'm, I'm with you (laughs) i'm just like word spewing here but and i think we can do that too as like liberal people right where we just we just hang out with people that only think like we do Mm -hmm. um and and it's comfortable. Exactly. I think it's like that comfort, like yeah. putting this box around me that I'm comfortable with and I have a connection with. Mm-hmm. And there's this idea of the other and I'm not connected and it's scary and I don't sure. want to be disconnected and have to navigate that line where I may be isolated and lonely. So I'm just going to like tell myself a story that I don't need to yeah. connect there. Yeah. Once you formed these connections or started seeking out these connections, started being driven with not being lonely. Can yeah. you tell us a little bit about your headspace then? I became um, really, really sad. Okay. Um, I just started to shut down. Mm-hmm. You know, and like we can talk about this at another time, but sort of like white women tears, you know, like I was the crier. Like, oh, this is just, this is all so overwhelming. And I felt, then I started to get really angry. Mm-hmm. You know, like why hadn't I learned American history correctly we mm-hmm. talk about this like all it the just time. made me crazy right mm-hmm. and so now i'm reading in this journey i'm reading you know american history 
written by black women scholars, right? And it's just like, holy shit, like I Mm -hmm. had this all wrong. This is really, it was devastating. Right. You know, because like we've said, it's so ingrained in the foundations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We learn about, you know, certain presidents, certain figures in history in a certain light because it's written by the winners or the ones that have the power. Yeah. Not by the people who actually have a beautiful story to tell, but their story is basically watered down to the point that it doesn't exist. Or erased. Right. Right. But now I think we have the advantage of living in a time where... Um, we have so much access to these stories. And so mm-hmm. it's our job to go and find them and, mm-hmm. and listen to them yeah. um, and not let them be erased. Right. If there's someone who wants to share their story that's yeah. not in the mainstream. We have the duty to go and listen and learn. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And even as a person of color, I will say that I've been on both sides. I've been on the side where I've been discriminated against, but I've also been on the side where I was doing the discriminating. Mm. Even in gr- mm-hmm. spaces of people of color, there's a certain hierarchy of which races are quote unquote right. better, which right. ones are worse. So I have a lot of embedded anti-black racist ideologies that are embedded in me that I have to constantly do the work to check in on. Yeah, And I like how you said, Dr. Cohen, so you were very sad and angry and made it kind of because it becomes personal, right? Because it's about you. Yeah. But then how do you make that switch from taking your own, you know, vulnerability and sadness and kind of understanding that there's so many other people that are, are in so much pain as well? How do you come to that point where you can both look at your own feelings, but also, you know, serve the communities that mm-hmm. you want to serve? Hey, y'all, I know this is a little abrupt, but we have actually cut down this conversation into two parts because there's so much wonderful learning that we feel like we were unable to edit out anything. For that reason, I hope you enjoyed this first part. Next week, catch the second part of this episode.